Well, look with me. Uh, verse 1, chapter 31, it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. We get a summation of the battle, and it's not much of a summation. It's a really short battle. The battle was over in the first quarter. It didn't even get very far, and the Philistines have won very, very quickly. God had told the nation of Israel way back in Deuteronomy 28, you follow me, when you walk in faithfulness and obedience to me, the enemy will come, out, come in one way, they'll flee out seven different ways. When you're walking in faithfulness to me, I'll protect you, I'll be with you, you'll know great success and victory. He says later in that chapter, if you don't walk in faithfulness, if you walk in disobedience, you'll go in one way and you'll end up fleeing seven. It's an important reminder that Israel never lost a battle because they didn't lack or they lacked the, the, the military weapons to defeat the enemy. They, they never lost a battle because they didn't have enough men. They only lost when they were unfaithful to God. And here with a leader who's been unfaithful and walking in disobedience, the nation will know sudden defeat. They will flee in seven different directions. In fact, the last time we saw them fleeing in this kind of way was when uh, the, the great champion Goliath stood in front of the Israelites and they were fleeing from him in his presence. But you remember in that instance, David stepped up, defeated Goliath. And from that moment forward, it was the Philistines who were fleeing. But now in David's absence and under the leadership of Saul, they're led out into a losing battle. I'm reminded of this as I've been studying this over and over again, that leadership matters. Leadership matters. We say this often. As goes the leadership, so goes the home, so goes the family. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. As goes the leadership, so goes the nation. Leadership matters. We long for men who submit themselves to Christ not worrying about physical characteristics or the things that impress men, but men who love King Jesus, submit their lives to him and follow in obedience to his word. The nation longs for that kind of man and God is working behind the scenes to raise him up. A good shepherd named King David. But here under the leadership of Saul, they only know defeat. Look at verse two, it says the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab, Malchishua, and the sons of Saul. So here, uh, Saul's sons fall in battle. They're the next generation of leadership in this nation and they fall in battle. And it, it's a reminder of the hopelessness of this situation. Not only are we gonna see King Saul fall, but his sons will fall. And certainly the nation would have thought, well, even if King Saul dies, we have sons that will come after him and they will take up the banner of leadership. And yet here, the next generation, even the choices of men and Jonathan, who was a faithful man, will die. And it depicts even the depth of the hopelessness of the nation as they've walked in disobedience and sin. Jonathan, you remember, he is a man who has been faithful in every aspect of his life. He was one of the first to recognize the, the, the error of his father's ways, to, to recognize that David would be the anointed. You remember, he even said to David, I'll rule with you. You're going to rule. He recognized David. You're going to be king. It's God's word. That's what's going to happen. And he he, he devoted himself in loyalty to King David when King David was a nothing, was a nobody, but an armor bearer. And he's been faithful to his father, even though he disagreed with his father, even here fighting to the death to protect his father because even though he may have disagreed with his father, his father was the Lord's anointed. Jonathan will die just as he lived. He will die 
in faithfulness to God. And we look at this death and we might be tempted to think that this is somehow tragic, but be reminded of this today that precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. What did Jim Elliot say? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Be certain of this. Jonathan gave up what he could never keep to gain that which he could never lose. He placed his faith in Christ. He died a faithful man. He closed his eyes and he opened them in glory. We see depictions of death in this passage. I was reminded of D.L. Moody and it was said of D.L. Moody as he passed. He says, earth recedes. And heaven is appearing. This is my glorious day. Death for the faithful is a glorious thing. It's a going home. Jonathan, the choice of the nation, the next generation dies, but he dies in faithfulness to God. We look in verse three, it says, the battle went went heavy against Saul and the archers hit him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. Here we see the tragic end of this man's life, King Saul. But we've really seen it coming for a long time. Way back in chapter 13, Saul was already being written out of the story as he walked in sinfulness and disobedience. You remember in 13, he didn't wait on Samuel to come and offer the incense. And even there, God already began to write Saul's obituary as he told him that the kingdom will be torn from you because you wouldn't obey. You wouldn't listen to the voice of God. And God would have made you king. You could have done great things through you, but you wouldn't wouldn't trust him. You wouldn't obey him. And so God is going to give the kingdom to somebody else. This is the man who refused to wait on Samuel. He's the one who, you'll remember, he spared the Amalekites when God said destroy them all and he spared them for his own glory and for his own gain. This is the same man who who spilt the blood of the priests at, at, at Nob. This is the guy who tried to kill David. This is the man who has perpetually lied and been disobedient to God. And yet throughout all those instances as this man has snubbed his nose at God and walked in disobedience and rebellion, nothing has really happened. He'll, he'll rebel and something will be pronounced, but he continues to walk on and you wonder why. We see this today, don't we? People walk in sinful rebellion and disobedience to God and God does not always immediately bring judgment or punishment. And God doesn't do so here with King Saul either. Why? Because God is going to use Saul to accomplish his purposes in David's life. God is going to use a defiant king to refine David and make him into the king that God has him to be. Can God use defiant, rebellious men to accomplish his purposes? You bet he can. And so God is going to use Saul to accomplish his purposes. And when he comes to the end of the purposes that God has for him. God is done and King Saul is done. It's a disgraceful death. He bleeds out on the field of battle much like King Ahab. If you'll remember the story of evil King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they steal Naboth's vineyard, kill Naboth. And you remember God raises up Elijah and Elijah says to King Ahab, God saw what you did. You may think you got away with it, but God saw. You remember even in Hannah's song at the beginning of this, uh, she says of the Lord that the Lord is a God of knowledge. You know what that means? That God sees everything. 
And God's judgment is always perfect because it's a judgment that's full of knowledge. See, this is the danger of you and I when we judge somebody. You ever done this? You, you get upset with somebody, you judge them based on circumstances, but then later on you learn more about their story and you say, boy, I shouldn't have got so mad at them. If I had really known the fullness of the story, I wouldn't have gotten as upset. See, that's the problem with us. We don't know the fullness of the story, but God does, which is the reason why he is the only one who can judge in perfect righteousness. But the fact of the matter is God does see and he recompenses men according to their sin. And God says through Elijah to Ahab, I saw what you have done. And just as the dogs licked up, licked up the blood of Naboth, they'll lick up your blood. And you remember after that, I often think about Naboth's wife. He was a married man. And you wonder Naboth's wife, whose uh, husband has been killed unjustly, who was faithful, and all he had this little vineyard. And, and Ahab and Jezebel have taken it and killed this man, committed murder. And I wonder what his wife felt like when, when, when Ahab moves forward. Nothing happens to him. And she's probably wondering, God, do you not see the injustice, the vileness, the evil of this man? Looks like nothing happens until later on. You remember, much later, Ahab goes out into battle. He's going to fight in battle. He knows the enemy's after him. And he decides he's going to do something. You remember what he does? I'm going to disguise myself. Now I'm sure God's in heaven saying, boy, you put me in a spot now. I'll never figure out who you are. You put a different shirt on. Well, that's going to throw me off. But God sees God knows in that moment, an archer shoots a random arrow and it strikes Ahab in the chink of his armor. He bleeds out. They drag him off the field. They take his chariot to a wash area and they wash it out and the dogs lick up his blood. Listen, God is a God of knowledge who judges perfectly and he recompenses men according to their sin in his time and in his way. God says, vengeance is mine. And now here, God has seen as Saul has walked in disobedience and he will be killed. He'll be let out. Not honorable. It's, it's interesting. One of the commentators is he will, you know, he'll ask his armor bearer to take his life. And the armor bearer will say no. Question, he had another armor bearer who was a really good armor bearer. And who was that? And David. He got rid of him. Here he's got another. In fact, some of the commentators believe that this armor bearer was actually Doag, the Edomite. You remember who turned in David and killed the priest at Nob. And, but here he is. And he asks him. And he won't do it. He's afraid. Saul, even in his death, even in his death, he's encouraging people around him to disobey the law of God. Because the law of God says you don't touch the Lord's anointed. He's encouraging another man to disobey the law of God, but that man won't do it. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he takes his own life. And there's one commentator who said, well, this is the last act of an honorable king, an honorable act. Listen, there's no honor whatsoever in what King Saul does in this moment. In fact, it's the final act of, of rebellion against God because essentially what he's saying to God is, God, I am going to determine the time and the manner in which I die. That God, you are not in control, I'm in control, and I will dictate the circumstances of my death. It's the ultimate rebellion against God. God forbids self-murder. And so even here in his death, in his final act, he's shaking his fist at God. We, we talked about D.L. Moody. It was said of Stalin, his daughter, uh, Stalin's daughter said after he had basically uh, reproved all the people in the room for their disloyalty to him, as he began to die, he shook his fist at God as he peered into the sky and it says his spirit was wrenched from his body. 
dying in disobedience and rejection and rebellion. That's the picture of King Saul. And what is he worried about? If you notice there, what is he worried about? He's worried about his image. Here he is about to face God in judgment. And what's he worried about? How are they going to treat me after I die? But he dies just as he lived. That's, that was Saul's life. He's worried about his image. He's worried about people, what people thought about him instead of worrying about the one who would ultimately judge him. Remember what Jesus said? Don't fear him who can pill, kill the body but not the soul. Fill, fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. What his reaction should have been is that of the thief on the cross. You remember as he recognizes, I'm getting what I justly deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. And he cries out simply, remember me. And what did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. In fact, to me, it's the greatest tragedy of this incident is that even at this moment, I believe with all my heart that if, that if King Saul had turned in repentance and faith, God would have forgiven and shown grace and mercy. In fact, you're hoping for it right here at the end. You're thinking, maybe at this moment, we've seen this guy act in, in, in defiance and rebellion the entirety of his life. We've never seen repentance. Maybe we'll need it and see it now as he knows he's about to die. Now, maybe he'll cry out to God for mercy. Maybe now we'll see some brokenness. Maybe now we'll see some contrition. And, and yet, there's none here. No hope because he would never turn in repentance towards God. Listen to me this morning. I don't care where you've been. I don't care where you, what you've done. I don't care how far you have wandered. If there is breath in your lungs today, if you will turn to God in repentance and faith, he will forgive you, he will free you from the bondage of sin, and he will secure an eternity with you and him forever in heaven. That's the good news of Jesus Christ and the grace that he extends is every instance in which we see a person in scripture turn in the slightest way in repentance and faith, God runs to them with grace and forgiveness. And yet here is a man who walks to the very end in rejection and rebellion. And so on the other side, I, I warn you of this. If you walk in continued rejection and rebellion, and let me also remind you, you don't know the day of your death. Even though Saul, this is what's so interesting to me about Saul. I'm in control. I'm going to determine. The fact of the matter is, who was really in control? God. Let me let you in on something. Just because you don't want to give God control doesn't mean he's not in control. And so if you're here today, you say, well, maybe later I'll think about those things. You don't know about later. And if you continue on in rejection and rebellion towards God, listen to me. When you take that final breath, there is no longer any hope. Nobody's gonna pray you into heaven. There is no evangelism at the gates of hell. You get one, op you get, I think you get multiple opportunities in this life. That's the sad part about Saul's story. I think, see, all through the story, God's kind of wooing him to himself, even in his sin of rejection. Trust me, turn to me, and yet he wouldn't. And so there's only hopelessness and despair, even even at his death. He dies just as he lived in sinful rebellion towards God. Look at verse seven. It says, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled and then the Philistines came and lived in them. So you can see the the, the concentric circles, the ripple effects of Saul's disobedience as he's been disobedient and walked in rejection and failure. It's, it's led to the destruction of his children and the death of his children. And then, and then you see it move out to the death of his army. And then, and then you see it move out even further to the, to the destruction of this nation. 
You remember King Saul was was commissioned to defeat the Philistines, to defeat the enemies of God. That was his commissioning. You defeat the enemies of God, the Philistines, and yet he's failed in what he was called to do because of his sin and his disobedience. Remember, this was a nation, as you look at it, that is now being pushed out of their territory. They've been defeated and they're pushed out. Their their land is gonna be inhabited by the Philistines. But remember how they got here. Remember, God gave them, we studied this, God gave them Samuel. God raised up Samuel, didn't he? And, and boy, it was good. They had known victory. God was doing great things among them. And yet, what happened? They decided, we want a king like the Gentiles. Saul's getting old, not that impressive of a man anymore. And we really don't like all this talk of God and purity and holiness. We want the blessings of God. We want government uh, uh, without God. Does that sound familiar? And they rejected Samuel. And you remember Samuel gets upset and he goes to God and God says, Samuel, don't be upset. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just as they did when they served other gods, so they are doing now. You know what God was saying? Listen, when they rejected you, when they asked for a king, what they were really engaging in was idolatry. They're placing their faith and hope in a man. We want a king like this. We want a big, strong guy that's impressive, that will lead us into battle, that we can see with our eyes and we can look at. And guess what God says? You want it, you can have it. Remember what does Saul's name mean? You asked for it. Here it is. And God gives them what they want and they reject God in idolatry and they place their faith and their hope in a man. And guess what God does right here? He shows for you. He puts it on full display. This is what happens to the man or the nation that places their faith and their hope in anyone other than King Jesus. This is where it ends. Every other man will fail you and let you down. There's only one king that's truly reliable and faithful and it's King Jesus. God puts it on display for all the people to see. Look at verses eight through 10. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of the Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. It's interesting here, the, that phrase, it says they, to carry the good news. Also translated the gospel. This is a Philistine gospel. It's a Philistine gospel that, that goes forth. It's, it's good news to these people. And what is the good news? The good news is that the king of Israel is dead. The report of Saul's death and defeat of the Israelite army was good news for all the Philistines. The good news for all the Philistines that today on the Mount Gilboa, there's found a savior who has died. The deliverer of Israel, the, the hope of this nation, the man that they had placed their faith in is now dead. That is the Philistine gospel. 
And the evidence that they produce is the body of Saul that they parade around to show their victory. And they pin him on the wall of a city, Beit Shan. They take his armor, they strip his armor, and they place it in the temple of the Ashtaroth, the, the mistress or the female goddess, the counterpart to Dagon. First Chronicles chapter 10 tells us that they take off Saul's head and they place it in the temple of Dagon. And what are they demonstrating? They're demonstrating that that Saul is dead, Israel is defeated. And if Israel is defeated, then Yahweh is defeated and Dagon wins. Saul's disobedience has brought shame upon the name and the reputation of God. You know, um, almost every day at the heart of my prayer time in the morning is God, do whatever you have to do, but do not, do not let me bring shame upon your name of the gospel. When men fall in sin and disobedience, it brings shame upon the gospel even as it does here. Every time a pastor falls, the world rejoices. Can't you just see it in their glee? Another one fell, there you go. And they use it as an opportunity to continue to spread a Philistine gospel that somehow God is dead. Saul and his disobedience has brought shame upon his family, upon the name and reputation of his God. Well, we look forward and you see that there is a bit of hope. Look with me down at verses 11 through 13. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's an interesting end. There's this little glimmer of hope here at the very end of the book. The men of Jabesh Gilead. We've, we've talked about the men of Jabesh. I'm not gonna go into all the historical data behind these men, but if you remember their story, you remember that these men of Jabesh, they settled on the other side of the Jordan they didn't come when the nation of Israel gathered against the Benjamites. And they're, they're, they're not men of good reputation. Um, they're considered non-patriotic Jews. They're kind of the rejects. But you remember that when they were surrounded by the Ammonites, and the Ammonites were going to kill them or make them their slaves, cut out their right eyes, you remember it was Saul who learned about it. The one, the one, one act, one good act of Saul, really the only great story of Saul is that in that moment he recognized their position. And if you remember their story, he has connection with Jabesh. They're part of his family line. But knowing their situation, he went, went for them. He, he rescued them from that situation. He saved them from certain death and So here, the memory of what what Saul had done for them caused these men of Jabesh to 
to come for King Saul. They, they've heard of what the Philistines have done to, to his body, that it's been exposed to the element, pinned to the wall of the city, and they hear about this man that they know has rescued them. They owed their life to him. And so they risk their lives. They, they come after the body of King Saul. It was a dangerous mission to go into Beit Shan, controlled by the Philistines as Israelite men, and to go in that city and to remove the body of King Saul, but they did it. They risked their lives and then they take down that body and they, they would give to King Saul a proper burial. They'd, they'd burn the, the body and that would have been very unusual. Jewish people didn't burn bodies. The body was sacred. And, but the Jewish people, they would often work very hard to anoint a body for burial before the decay process had begun. And it appears in this situation that the body had decayed and and uh, been mutilated to such an extent that the only option was to burn the body. They burn the body and they take the, the bones of King Saul and they, they dig a little hole under a tamarisk tree. A tamarisk tree, if you look at its history in the Old Testament, Abraham, after his sojourning, after the incident with Isaac, he would he would uh, plant a tamarisk tree. A tamarisk tree was in Israel. If you go to Israel, you'll often see on stationery, you'll see the picture of a tamarisk tree. It's, got, it's the palm tree. And it's a picture of God's blessing. It's a reminder of God's blessing upon this nation. It's a reminder of the faithfulness of God, that, that he who promised is faithful. It's a reminder of the nation that God has made promises to you, and, and God will be faithful, and God will fulfill those promises. And so they find this tamarisk tree, these, these rejects, these outcasts, these lowly men who have risked their lives, and they got the, they all got the bones of Saul, and they find a tamarisk tree as a reminder of God's faithfulness. And they, they dig a little hole, and they... They put the bones there and it says that they fasted and they prayed. When it says that they fasted, what it means is that they repented. They confessed their sin. They cried out to God. It, it, to me, it's a powerful picture. As the book ends, there's all this hopelessness. There's all this despair. There's all this death. But the book ends with just a few guys gathered around a hole in a tamarisk tree. And they're fasting. You know what I think they're praying? God, forgive us. We've walked in sin and disobedience, and this is where it got us. God, save us. And you know what you see throughout salvation history? What you see throughout salvation history is that all it takes is a few people who are lowly and humble in heart, who will gather together in repentance and faith and say, God, we've disobeyed, we repent, we ask for your forgiveness, and we cry out, Lord, save you. And God can take those few little believers gathered together and begin a great work. Folks, this is how revival begins. It begins with people who are worn out with a Philistine gospel that says God is dead and recognize that the, the, the circumstances that they're facing are in due, due in large part to their own sin. And rather than blaming the world, they confess their own sin and they turn to God in faith and repentance. And, and God can take a little group of people and he can do something incredibly great.
You want to go study something neat, go read about the layman's prayer revival. And lamb fear, this layman would go out and decide to start a noon prayer meeting in a church. And the first meeting they had, I think they had five people. And pretty soon, what was five in a small little room seeking God and praying and asking for forgiveness would spread across this nation and lead to one of the great movements of God this nation has ever known. But listen, if we want to know that in our day, it's going to come when we begin to realize the futility of placing our faith and our hope in anyone other than King Jesus. And we confess our idolatry and we quit looking to politicians and people and political systems and wealth and money and we start confessing our sin and saying, God, we know that you and you alone are our only hope. Because if you go on from this story, if you go on from this story, you fast forward a thousand years, guess what you see? You see Israel's final anointed king, King Jesus. And he... Is, is pinned not to a city wall, but you remember, he's pinned to a cross. And he is publicly brought to shame. He is stripped naked. Maybe the depictions of the cross, like put the little cloth on. Listen, he was publicly shamed, stripped naked before the world, strapped to a cross. On this day with King Saul, he was publicly disgraced for his own sin. Jesus, when he was pinned to that cross and publicly shamed, he was shamed for whose sins? For yours, for mine. He took our sin, he took our sorrow, and he made it his very own. He bore our sins to Calvary, and he suffered, and he died alone. And they took him, just as it was with King Saul here. There were some men who loved King Saul, and they came for him, they took care of his body. Were there some men who loved Jesus? and risked their lives and came Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and they take down the body of Jesus and they gave him a proper burial. And don't you know, just as it was in Saul's day, don't you know on that day when they placed Jesus in the tomb that the Philistine gospel went forth that day? The Roman leadership, Pilate had put Jesus on a public cross to let the world know your king's dead. And the world said, the king of Israel's dead. He's gone. He won't disturb the peace anymore. And the Jewish leader said, we've got ridden, rid of this, this guy who's cutting in on our business and, 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 and Jesus is dead. And if you peered into the courts of hell, I can guarantee you Satan and all the demonic realm were rubbing their hands together saying the king is dead. Listen to me, Hannah in her song, you know what she says? The Lord kills and the Lord gives life. We're looking for a king who will come back from the dead. And it ain't going to be Saul. And you get excited and say, maybe it'll be David. No, he's going to die too. But there is a king. There is a king. Who was placed in a tomb and on the third day he rose. And Paul says in Colossians that he has disarmed the enemies of death and made a public spectacle of them in his resurrection. Just as they made a public spectacle of Saul, Jesus in his resurrection has made a public spectacle of our enemies of sin, Satan, and death. Satan has no longer any sway over our life. 
Because Christ has won the victory in his death and resurrection. And we go out into a world and we proclaim the Christian gospel. That the enemy has been defeated. And Christ gives life to anyone who comes to him. And he is our hope. He is our trust. He is our salvation. Christ and Christ alone. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that in every aspect on every page points us to the ultimate king, the only hope we can have, and that is King Jesus. Even David would say, my heart is glad and my flesh rejoices, for you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. David wasn't hoping in himself. He was hoping the holy one who would not undergo decay, the one who would come back to life, the one who would defeat the grave and make a way back to God. His hope was in Messiah. Lord, I pray for anybody here today. I don't know what they're trusting in. They're all, all of us, unless Christ returns, all of us are gonna face death. I don't know what they're hoping in, but I, I pray that they would place their hope in the one who defeated the grave. The one who lived a perfect sinless life and died on a cross for their sins and overcame the grave and defeated sin, Satan, and death and now gives to us the victory through faith in him. I pray that they would trust in him. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would pursue faithfulness and obedience to you, knowing you and you alone are our ultimate hope. Forgive us for the idolatry of our lives, for looking to other things for hope and meaning and salvation. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, to demonstrate with all of our life that our only hope is Jesus. And I pray that in a dark day, like these faithful, lowly men, which is exactly what we are, sinners saved by grace, but we too would gather in places in this city and around this world with the heart of repentance and faith saying, God, save us. We wanna see you move in our day, God. We wanna see you bring revival to our nation. We believe it is possible with you. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful. We wouldn't look to anybody or anything else other than you. God, save us. God, forgive us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.